Well, I never thought I would say this, but it's now been a year since kids across the country left school and started learning at home. And the teacher just told us to pack up all our things from our desk because we might be at home the next day. I didn't really think that we were going to be at home, but turns out we were, and it stayed like that for a really long time. There have been plenty of hiccups. Sometimes the tech can be annoying, like the assignment won't post, so you can't do it. And virtual classrooms can be a poor substitute for the real thing. In person, you can see people. And they're not in the middle of one sentence and you're hearing their last sentence. But there's no doubt the pandemic is ushering in a new reliance on technology and education. And even when kids and teachers head back to school in person, investors are betting that tech will play a bigger role in education. That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. I'm Michal Avram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. You just heard from Ruby, Grady, and Olivia, just a few of the millions upon millions of kids who've been impacted by the move to remote school over the past year. Of course, that extends beyond kids. Teachers faced an impossible task of suddenly shifting to all online. I mean, talk about a tough pivot to make. And most teachers were not in a position for making a quick transition to remote teaching. Many teachers were not using learning management systems or class management systems like Google Classroom. Many were not organized digitally. That was Karen Kirsch-Page. She works for the Center for Technology and School Change at Teachers College at Columbia University in New York. And she helps teachers build their skills and comfort with using digital tools. She pointed out that this transition went way beyond just teachers connecting with their students. It was also connecting with the whole support system behind those kids. Parents weren't used to being close to the center of the learning process. And so schools, teachers had to think about communication systems to include parents or caregivers, siblings who might have been helping. So, Brian, this definitely resonates with me. I mean, I was not the president of the PTA, pre-COVID, far from it. But I was involved in my kids' school. And it's so ironic because they've been home so much more than usual with, you know, all virtual and now hybrid school, which they're in. But I feel so much more disconnected from what they're actually doing in school than I used to. Yeah, it's like you've become the principal of your own little school at home and you're in charge of testing and logistics and stuff. And you're not actually having much time to listen to the subject matter. But as tough as it's been for folks like you or me, it's been way tougher for all kinds of other communities and families who maybe don't have the same access even to Wi-Fi or technology or, you know, people can't work from home. That makes it tough to help their kids. I mean, remote schooling is hard enough. What do you do if you can't get access to the internet, if you don't have a consistent home environment? It makes it close to impossible. Yeah, Brian, sadly, the pandemic has amplified some of the inequities in the education system. At the same time, it's also presented a lot of opportunities, especially for technology companies and innovators. The company PowerSchool, for example, specializes in education technology for grades K through 12, and it's been around for a few decades. 
it's got a really popular learning platform called Schoology, which my kids' school actually uses. But it's also got a bunch of other systems for teacher recruiting and onboarding. So it's basically a comprehensive end-to-end platform and is used by about 45 million students. I spoke with the CEO, Hardeep Gulati, who told me about helping schools go digital. Talk to me about some of the shifts over the last year or so, because obviously, even though you've been around for a while, you've got a lot of big customers already and had them on board, things have shifted pretty significantly. In what ways have you most felt the shifts over the last year? When COVID hit, there was a lot of disruption in the education ecosystem. There were overnight shift in terms of need, both from a perspective of having more digital learning tools in the classroom, but then also back office systems doing enrollment online so parents don't have to stand in the line, having systems move to cloud so the IT folks can actually be more safe and can manage that remotely. So we saw during a pandemic shift a big focus on how do we make sure a full digital transformation, both in the classroom as well as in the back office. So overnight in the spring, we almost saw a 700% increase in our learning management solution, Schoology. In fact, over the summer and going into this year, we added 5 million more students on our platform. So we do have been working with a lot of districts even prior to COVID on their blended learning environments. Definitely in the COVID, it became a must-have to make sure that they can keep the learning going. How have you addressed the needs of lower-income kids and lower income schools. There's such a big discrepancy when it comes to the technology and broadband and you name it, that different areas and different families within the same area have access to. So from your perspective, how do you address that? Uh, We definitely work with our partners and school districts to see what resources we can help to bear in those circumstances. As hybrid learning became the norm, It was also important that how we are teaching in that online and hybrid world or how the teachers are trained to deal with the digital education, especially factoring the equity in mind, with the whole focus on leveraging the expertise around how teachers make sure when they're teaching, they're actually factoring the different aspects of the social-emotional well-being of the kid, what the environment they might be. So they are factoring all those things into the consideration when they are doing the online learning. So how exactly are you able to help track how kids are doing socially? One aspect of that is in terms of the engagement itself in the classroom, how they're responding to different homework assignments, how much they are participating. But we also provide and partner with different social emotional tools like surveys, like cultural tracking tools. So we can actually see and take the feedback from the student itself and trying to build a holistic aspect of the whole child, what has been their attendance, what has been their participation, what has been their achievement, and working with them to understand how their behavior and involvement is so we can kind of bring all that together for the school districts. So I'm curious also if you can talk about how different customers that you have, you know, how you're able to meet their needs because obviously you're catering to kids and teachers and parents and these are all very different customers with varying levels of you know, access to technology and comfort with technology. We want to bring technology in an easy, seamless way to a student so they don't have to go to multiple systems and they can focus on the actual learning. 
Same thing from a teacher perspective. 49% of the teacher's time, based on a McKinsey study, talks about how that goes into administrative tasks. So our focus is how do we empower the teacher with a seamless experience that we can actually focus most of their time back to teaching. There's obviously so much concern right now about a regression, right? About kids losing time and, and losing valuable learning because of the pandemic. Is anything that you guys are doing, or is it actually aimed at increasing engagement to kind of make up for some of this loss? And are you able to really innovate, come out with new features and tools that are helpful in this area? As districts now getting the learning forward, the big focus shifted on what is the learning loss? Where are the students? Are we leaving behind certain students? Are they dropping from attendance? So you can actually predict based on historically where are some of the areas where the kids might actually fall behind. So you can provide interventions even before the kids start dropping out. So this has been a big focus for us is that just like we're trying to simplify the experience for teachers and students, we want to make sure parents also get the full view. So while they may not be in the day-to-day aspects of all the different learning aspects, if we can help them understand how the child is doing, they can actually help them focus and support that child better. So the number one request we always get from parents is that help us understand and give us that view that allows them to support their child better. And we have done numerous things all the way from our mobile app, which is used by millions of parents because that allows them to quickly look at what's upcoming for their child. Uh, You get a quick Apple Watch notification to tell you that your child is behind on an assignment, which was due. So now you can kind of provide that help to say, you know, that small gentle nudge that they can know that they, they uh, they don't fall behind. These are just minor things, but really add up because that parent engagement actually drives directly student engagement. And that ultimately drives better outcomes for everyone. One of the things that seems really appealing for teachers about what Hardeep was saying and the technology that they have developed is that it can weed out a lot of the inefficiencies of the traditional education system. And the teachers can focus more on teaching and less on all this administrative and red tape stuff that takes up so much of their time now. Yeah, I agree with that theoretically, but I do wonder about what it does for the parents, you know, the benefits and the drawbacks. I mean, it's interesting that on the one hand, you would think that features like getting a notification on your your watch or phone uh, about whether your kid is late on a homework assignment, you know, that seems like it would make things easier for you. But to be honest, like, first of all, I haven't opted into those kind of notifications. And there's a reason for that, you know, like, it's one more thing that I'm getting like, pinged about constantly, whereas it used to be more of a conversation, you know, a conversation with my kids and a conversation with their teachers. Not to mention, if you get a notification every time they miss an assignment, or every time something happens, it can really trigger your helicopter parent instincts. Very, very true. And I've tried to veer very far away from that territory. When you're in person, you can collaborate better with your friends and teachers. And so you get more individualized help. It's harder to ask questions. It's harder to interact with your classmates and your teachers as well. And it's just harder to kind of retain information because you are online. 
Okay, so clearly there's room for innovation when it comes to digital tools in the classroom. And investing in this space is one of the big trends sweeping across Silicon Valley right now. Isn't that right, Michal? Yeah, we're definitely seeing a lot of the bigger firms, you know, like Andreessen Horowitz and General Catalyst betting on education startups. It's not an entirely new trend, but it's definitely seeing a ton of acceleration because of COVID. Our next guest really has a good perspective on that. James Kim is a principal at Reach Capital. It's a venture capital firm focused on education. And James used to be a high school math teacher and college admissions officer. He says that COVID didn't exactly invent the ed tech space. All these trends that are playing out now were in place already, but it certainly accelerated the adoption of the technology. And he gave me a couple of interesting stats. For instance, global VC investment in education tech has basically quadrupled in just over five years from around $4 billion in 2015 to $16 billion last year. We wanted to get James's thoughts on what happens to an industry that's experiencing this kind of influx of money and attention. What is this tsunami of new money going to do? Is it going to spark a lot of innovation? Is a lot of it going to kind of early stage, more experimental companies? Is it going to help some of the more established players scale? Or is it a big enough kind of across the board that all of that's going to happen? I think it's all of the above, and I think it's a net positive. I think that the ed tech industry has been somewhat starved of capital in the last, call it five years or so. And so it's exciting to see so much capital flowing into the industry and supporting all sorts of innovative technology, all sorts of innovative business models. But we're also seeing a lot of early stage activity. And in fact, reach as a seed and series A fund, we've never been so busy with deal flow. So I think it's happening across the board. Where do you focus and where is there more heat and excitement right now in the industry? I would argue that actually it's the excitement appears to be across the board. If you look at just 2020, the calendar year alone, the biggest rounds were actually sort of the older population. So so higher ed, uh, as well as sort of workforce development and corporate learning. But actually, in just the last couple of months, there have been a spate of K-12 deals. And so I think there's just, in the investment market, there's excitement around education technology writ large. You talk about innovative technologies or business models that you know might emerge, especially with new investment. I mean, I think we can all picture yeah our kids going to school at home on Zoom and you know using a tool like Google Classroom but if we're thinking about this as a moment where you know there might be some leaps forward in technology what are the kinds of things we're we're going to imagine let's start with what you mentioned which is the whole Zoom online learning experience i think what many students and parents found early on in the pandemic is that Zoom it's a great product, but it's not built for the education use case. You lack the ability for any sort of classroom arrangement, for example, or having TAs uh, or having any grading functionality, things like that. And so we relatively early on recognized that there would be, need to be a new crop of products that were Zoom, but built for the education use case. There's another company of ours, Paper, uh, which is on-demand, 24-7 chat-based tutoring and essay review. And the innovation there is not so much around the tutoring itself, 
The innovation is the fact that they're actually selling their platform to schools and districts on a fixed cost basis. And then the districts are turning around and provisioning that free of charge to their students. So it's a very strong equity play where regardless of your family's income or your zip code, you can receive on-demand academic support. And that's resonated very strongly with the market. Hmm. I'll just mention one more. So so OutSchool is a D2C marketplace of interest-based classes for K-12 through students. And the innovation here is actually setting up this uh, two-sided marketplace of certified educators on one side who have interests of their own, of course, and they're turning those interests into classes that are then being offered in small groups to students. You might, for example, as a student, learn Spanish through Taylor Swift lyrics, or you might learn history through Dungeons and Dragons. This is an exciting way to offer a supplemental education to the K through 12 population. So it's like teachers sort of freelancing on the side and, and creating creative, fun classes, and then offering that directly to students outside of their normal school. That's exactly right. And then, and then earning supplemental income through that. Interesting. So at the K through 12 level, we're investors in a company called TeachFX, which analyzes audio from a classroom and then outputs feedback to the teacher in terms of teacher talk time versus student talk time, which groups of students, which demographics are speaking most, what is the level of the rigor of the classroom discourse. And that's all AI driven. There's no human intervention there. So there are real problems that are solved by AI in education already. And I believe we'll continue to see other problems that can be solved by this technology. We don't think that AI can take the place of a caretaker or a teacher anywhere in the near future. We actually haven't invested in any of these pure, you know, call it single player personalized learning solutions that just have a student sitting in a booth going through content by themselves. We believe that there is a very important place for human beings in the teaching and learning process. Obviously, the teachers of the world have gone through a crash course and, you know, learning to teach in new ways over the past year. But what do you need to see from, you know, teachers or what kind of support do they need to be able to implement technology better, you know, at all levels, including in college, to be able to really make all these things take hold and become permanent once we get past this pandemic a little bit? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question because I think an unstated assumption by many generalist investors is that you just build the technology and put it in the hands of students or educators and it'll just work its magic. But it turns out that's not always the case, right? And so, of course, ideally you would make a product so intuitive, so user-friendly that you can indeed put it in the teacher's hands and, and they can more or less use it off the shelf. But we recognize that's not always the case. We know that professional development is an enormously important part of the teaching practice. And so we look for companies that recognize that, that understand the demands on educators and, and frankly, on all stakeholders in education, students, parents, teachers, administrators, and can work around that and can support those stakeholders in using this new technology. You know, a lot of these companies that he's talking about, they're not entirely new companies or new technologies, right? But who would have thought that they would have this crazy opportunity to just basically like put their beta out there at such a crazy large scale? Basically, you know, all of these kids, all our kids that have now gone almost entirely virtual. Absolutely. And and that makes it even more interesting to hear directly from the kids who are being plunged into this and having to use the technology. 
a lot of the kids we spoke to for this episode from elementary school all the way up through high school said they think it's harder to learn online. Here's Annie, a junior from Larkspur, California. They're just constant distractions. Your teachers cannot see what you are doing behind your screen, and it is so easy to start multitasking. We all have the ability to mute ourselves and turn our cameras off, and so the idea of being present and attentive at school really changes. So what Annie is saying there raises a question that we still haven't really talked about yet. How effective is this technology? Ellen Meyer is a professor of technology and computing practice, as well as the director of the Center for Technology and School Change at Teachers College, Columbia University. I was interested to hear her thoughts on this question. Very big question, of course, and one that uh, we don't have clear and absolute answers for right now because everything is still emerging. But I'd like to back up by saying that we've had technology in the schools for over 40 years, and not much was done with it over that 40-year period of time. One of the things that we have learned and that the educational community in, in general has learned is that you can't just hand these devices to teachers and expect them to know exactly how to use them in the most effective ways. And so what we're doing is trying to link that pedagogical knowledge, how to engage kids in active problem solving, in inquiry learning, in hands-on. Those things all make a difference for learning. So if we can use the technology in service of that kind of learning, that's what we need to do. So you mentioned that the technology has been in the classroom for decades, but it hadn't really been used or fully embraced. First of all, why wasn't it more fully embraced? And do you think teachers now in general are more open to using technology and are going to see the benefits of integrating it into the experience going forward? And it's going to sort of evolve the way they teach. Another complicated question, but I'll unpack it. Yes, the research showed that although the technology was in the classrooms, because no one had really helped teachers learn to use it and to show them how to use it productively, what ended up happening is something I've written about, which is we digitized the status quo. We used the computers to simply do the things, um, you know, worksheets suddenly became online. This transition, when you had nothing but the technology to use to teach, suddenly called into question, well, what could and should we be doing? And that's when I think we now have an opening for um, bringing in more of a pedagogical discussion about how to use these tools effectively to pursue the kind of learning that we know really engages kids and makes them the learners for tomorrow that we need them to be. Are we now seeing, or do you think we're going to see a rapid iteration of new capabilities there now that all students, all teachers across the country and in some cases around the world have been exposed to how these things work? I think absolutely. First of all, teachers have really learned a lot about the technology they've been forced to. And I think many of them have seen now the affordances of technology and what they, the creative things we can do. And I, I don't think they're going to um, lock it up again. I think they're going to be using it more. Is there evidence that kids who are learning mostly remotely or online, like assuming that they have a suitable device and suitable connection and family support to be present, do they not learn as well as in the classroom? Or do we not have enough research to show that one way or the other? Well, that's the question everybody, of course, is 
very curious to understand and know. We all want to know that. I, I think it's early days. Many people have made the argument that students have been exposed to other kinds of learning, obviously not classroom learning, but have been able to do all sorts of other things um, during this period of time. And so there are ways in which uh, both through thoughtful online learning with the teachers and in other kinds of ways, students are not necessarily falling as behind as some are, are worried about them being. So what would be like an ideal blending of technological capacity that's been developed and the traditional you know, ability to convene students? I think we would start with equitable access. We would start with access to the equipment. We would start with teachers who are very comfortable and fluent with the use of technology. And we would also wish that they had the kind of support and professional development to have developed some really interesting hands-on and engaging projects for students. A lot of what we're starting to hear is that many parents and many students would like to be continue to learn online. So if this becomes something that emerges as, as important to districts, I think becoming better equipped and better supported to do that kind of learning, that kind of mix makes a lot of sense. Another piece of the learning process that we haven't talked about is, is assessment and understanding how to assess students online or through using digital tools. Um, is another place in which we can be very creative. It doesn't have to be the multiple choice test anymore. Technology allows us to listen to our students' thinking. So we not only know whether or not the student got the right or wrong answer, but why? What were they thinking about when they answered in that way? We can ask them to explain. We can ask them to present a, a multimodal, um, some sort of product. They can invite community members in to bounce off their ideas. There are just all sorts of very exciting ways in which school can become bigger than what it has been when we limit it to the classroom. So, Brian, one of my closest friends happens to be the principal from my kid's school. And I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen somebody work so hard and be all in, including all through last summer, and is just impressive and unprecedented and insane how hard teachers and, and school administrators have been working to make this crazy pivot. You know, it takes large well-resourced companies years and years to make these like digital transformations. And here we've seen entire school districts just completely upend the way they do things really overnight, you know? And I know there's been a lot of criticism and concerns, but I think it really stresses that it's just so important as venture capital firms are investing in these new technologies that we're really investing collectively in training teachers on how to most effectively use these technologies too. Absolutely. And I don't have quite the same personal window into the process, but just from following, you know, what my son's been going through with school and imagining all the different variables that the principal of his school and all the teachers have had to deal with, changes in policy and having to prepare for multiple scenarios. It's very tough. I thought that the point that Ellen made about you know, we need to not just digitize the status quo. We need to use technology to advance and, you know, create new techniques for teaching that reach more people, that reach kids better. That's really important. And that's something that we can sort of hold on to and take away as a positive. 
Yeah, hopefully we come out of this so much stronger, not only in the way that we approach the role of technology in education, but also in making sure that we're not leaving behind any students. There is something that gives me a lot of hope for the future of education. And it's not just kids, but it's the, again, the resiliency of teachers who in a moment of crisis responded like this. Our teachers were super nice and they just were like, let's roll with it. And every Friday we'd have a dance party and they tried really hard to make it feel normal. Before we go, I want to give a final shout out to all the kids who appeared in this episode. Ruby, Grady, Olivia, Julian, and Annie. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. 